We finished our look at the Ten Commandments last week, concluding with the Tenth Commandment. This week, what I want to do is a, a fairly simple summary of the Ten Commandments themselves and bring home some of the things that I've mentioned throughout our study of these commandments and then make a final concluding prayer. So uh, to summarize the Ten Commandments, I think the best place to go is the passage of Scripture we read this past Sunday morning for our revelation of God's will. So if you don't attend our church at Sovereign Grace, we have a part of our service where we read God's will for our lives, how he wants us to live. And throughout the last at least 10 Sundays, the passage of Scripture we've read has been the commandment that I've been teaching on in these Wednesday evening devotions. Well, last Sunday we read from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, which are verses we return to often when we consider God's will for our life. Because they summarize here, or Jesus himself summarizes for us, what our calling is as Christians and what God desires of us. So let me read these verses, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now we see a lot in these verses and this statement from our Lord Jesus. First of all, that the whole commandments, or all the commandments of God, that is these Ten Commandments here especially, are summarized in these two great commandments, loving God and loving our neighbor. This shows us that our whole goal in following God's will and God's will for our lives is that, that it's a goal that is centered around love about what we set our affection on, what drives our life, because really when you think about what we do in and out, or day in and day out in our lives, everything we do in some way, shape, or form is motivated by love. And as Christians, our supreme love is to be of the Lord. And then that will lead to the second supreme love, you could say, of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Because as the Bible says, in two other places at least, another um, another place from the mouth of our Lord Jesus And another place from Paul's mouth that love is the way we fulfill the commandments. Love is the fulfilling of the commandments. Jesus says that in John 14, verse 15. He says simply, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So here's not just a a statement and then its logical conclusion, but the way we love God, the way we love Christ, is to keep his commandments. They are one and the same. Paul says in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, the Commandments are aimed at our loves. And there's a certain sense where you and I, no matter how old we are, or how long we've been a Christian, even if you're not a Christian, there's a sense in which you are defined as a person by your love, by what you love, the object of your affection. It is so intimately tied to your identity, who you are. Um, so there's one, one uh, philosopher who says that you are what you love, but you might not love what you think you love. 
In other words, as those who are fallen, as those who are sinful, even as Christians who've been given a new heart and a desire to love the Lord, we still uh, struggle. We still sin against the Lord. We still find ourselves and our affections drawn to the things of this world, drawn to things that are sinful, drawn to things that are motivated by pride and love of ourself above all, not love for God and love for our neighbors. That's why the commandments of God centered on love are given to us first and foremost, uh, to humble us, that is, to show us our sin, to convict us, and uh, to show us how we have fallen far short of God's glory. We've spoken in these studies about how the commandments reveal to us the character of God. They show us what he is like. So if you want a picture of God, then you just look to his commandments, to his law, and you have a description of his holiness. And since we're made in his image, we are to show that same holiness by how we live our lives. But since we've fallen in Adam and also have committed our own sins and transgressions, we have not lived up to his glory. We've not imaged him well. We've sinned against him in our rebellion. And the commandments are given to us to help us to see just how far we fall short of God's glory. Now, this happens in the first place. And when you become a Christian, you cannot become a Christian without realizing how bankrupt you are morally before the Lord and how unholy you are and how much you need salvation. Salvation itself implies you need to be saved from something. And to have a right relationship with God implies that that relationship is not right at a certain point in time. So what needs to be done to make that relationship right? What needs to be done to bring you deliverance? Or what do you need to be delivered from? Well, the answer is sin and its consequences, its guilt, its shame, the judgment that it uh, entails, the wrath that is stored up for us because of our sin. This is how we have salvation. So in the very first outset of your Christian life, you become a Christian by being convinced of your sin and misery, your guilt and how you stand naked and ashamed before the Lord who is holy and gracious and who will righteously and out of great love for his own glory, he w- who will judge appropriately based on what we have done. And so the commandments of God help us to see that, the ways we have not loved God or our neighbor as ourselves, that we would humble our hearts and seek deliverance and seek salvation by repenting of our sin, fleeing from it, turning from it, hating it, and trusting in the one who has taken away our guilt and our shame, who died for our sins, who stood in our place, Jesus Christ himself. So the law of God is given to us to humble us, to show us ways we have fallen short of his glory, and to lead us to Christ. It does this in the beginning of our salvation, and it does it all throughout our Christian life until we reach perfection, which won't happen this side of glory until our own resurrection, when we will no longer be able to even think of sinning against the Lord. It is until we are with Christ, either when he comes again and we're resurrected in glory or when we die and go to be with him. Now, this it's in that moment that we will um, be made perfect in holiness and the law will cease to be uh, a, a means of showing us our sin. But until that moment occurs, we still continue to sin against the Lord and we need his instruction, his law to show us the depth of our fallenness and how continual our need of a savior is of one who will stand in our place and take the condemnation we deserve for our sin. That's what Jesus does. He takes it, and he doesn't just take it. He bears it to the full. He drinks the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, to the very uttermost point. He dies for our sins, and he 
is buried in the, in, the, in the tomb. He experiences hell for us. And then he rises again on the third day in glory, victorious over Satan, over sin, over death. And it's in his resurrection that we see the, new, the newness of life that he provides for us. The newness of life that he frees us to live. And that's where the commandments of God, as found in the Ten Commandments especially, not only are given to show us our sin and to humble us, but also to direct us in that newness of life, to show us what path we should take, to show us what steps we should uh, uh, take, uh, to, to show us how we live now as those who have been redeemed and restored to right fellowship with God. In other words, the commandments of God, they humble us for our sin, but they also direct our steps into Christ-like love. Um, this is how we're taught to love God. You want to know what it's like to love God? Well, look at the first four commandments. You love God by having no other gods besides him, by being loyal to him alone, that your allegiance might be towards him. And by not making any graven image or idols, which when we looked at that commandment, we saw goes far beyond worshiping a statue made of wood or stone or metal. It goes to the idols of our hearts, whatever we're trusting in to bring us deliverance from the consequences and guilt and shame of sin. We love God by not taking his name in vain, which is far more, but not less, than how we speak of him and how we use his name. It involves how or if we worship. It involves so much of our day-to-day -day lives as we live as Christians, especially as those who are baptized and have his name applied to us. We take his name in vain anytime we walk out of step with his law and with his commandments. We love God by keeping his day holy by worshiping him in spirit and in truth on the day that he has set aside for us to do that, on the first day of the week, um, the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We begin our week by this holy rest that we then go forth and out of thankfulness and gratitude walk in the commands that he has given to us to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the loving of our neighbor as ourselves is simply... Uh, summarized for us in the remaining commandments, beginning with the fifth commandment, to love those who are over us in authority, say our parents, that's the, the uh, main uh, paradigmatic uh, relationship of authority in our lives. It's the one we first know when we're born, um, right down to those who are over us in governmental positions and uh, where we work and things like that, but then also those who are under us, those who are our uh, inferiors, you could say, those who we have charged to um, exercise godly authority over them. It's Think of parents and children. Think of employers and employees. In those cases, we're called to love one another by giving honor and by being worthy of receiving honor and by doing so in a godly way. What does it mean to love your neighbor? It, it means not to, uh, not to kill them, whether in actual uh, taking up a weapon in a hand and killing someone or not killing them in uh, your mind or murdering them in your mind. We saw in that commandment that that doesn't, um, doesn't forbid all killing in the sense, you know, the state has the sword and uh, it's, it's, it's sometimes necessary, even in self-defense, uh, to, to, uh, to, to kill, but not to do so um, based on just our own, uh, our own uh, uh, taking matters into our own hands, that type of view. Rather, we do not murder. We do not take life in an unnecessary way. Um, very, few of, very few of us uh, will be ever in the position where the taking of a life is necessary. Think of certain soldiers in battle or police officers when justice requires it, uh, or even the state whenever someone has 
uh, committed a sin that is worthy of the death penalty. In these circumstances, yes, killing is enabled and uh, given, and, and, and the Lord gives the state the sword. But for the individual Christian, we ought not to murder, nor should we not murder in our, in, our, in, our, in our hearts by hating someone, by calling them evil names. This is how you and I break that commandment often. We love our neighbor by, by um, not committing adultery, not taking another man's wife or another woman's husband uh, to, to ourselves, nor to commit adultery by the act of lust, which Jesus says is to commit adultery in your heart. The same way anger is murder in your heart, lust is adultery in your heart. We're to love our neighbor by not, uh, not stealing from them, not taking what is not ours. We to love are to love our neighbor by not bearing false witness against them, nor by coveting the things that they have. In other words, how do you love God and how do you love your neighbor? Well, it's in the commandments of God. The Lord's commandments are given to us to direct our steps. I think a helpful way to conclude this is to turn to the catechisms we've looked at a number of times in our lessons through this or through the Ten Commandments. First, to the larger catechism. Each, both the larger catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism, which we focused on mainly, uh, have a whole section about the law of God. And they conclude with very helpful questions and answers, uh, teaching us how to think about this, this law. So I'm going to read uh, question 149 from the larger catechism. Uh, after it exposits and describes the Ten Commandments, it asks this question. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And it gives a very humbling and sobering answer. No man is able, either of himself or by any grace received in this life, perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought and in word and in deed. In other words, in our day-to-day life, we break these commandments all the time. We do not have perfect thoughts nor perfect words and definitely not perfect deeds. And so it is our lifelong uh, our lifelong duty to repent and to seek after forgiveness and newness of life and holiness. The uh, Heidelberg Catechism says this, and a little bit more that's very helpful. It asks in the 114th question, it says, Can those who are converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? The answer is very similar to the larger catechism. No, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning at disobedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. And this is a wonderful question that captures both of the uh, uses of the law I spoke of earlier. Not only to humble us, to show us that we make a small beginning at obeying God's commandments, but also that we will, as Christians, we will walk in the path that the commandments lay before us with all seriousness of purpose. Uh, And we will seek to and make some progress, however tiny and small, at all of God's commandments. Number 115 of the Heidelberg, the next question says, well, since no one is in this life able to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? Which is a wonderful question, because it implies God does want these commandments preached so pointedly, which he does. If you read on in the Bible, particularly in Deuteronomy 6, after Deuteronomy 5, which is where you find the Ten Commandments uh, as well, Deuteronomy 6, uh, Moses or God instructs the people through Moses that these commands should always be before them in their homes, 
they should keep them with them wherever they go, teach them diligently to their children, so on and so forth. So the question, uh, since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? answer is great. First, so that all of our life long, we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. And second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. I like that last part of the catechism question there. It says that uh, part of our job, our duty, our delight even, as we consider the Ten Commandments as Christians, is that we never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. Because the only way we keep these commandments, the only way we make even the small progress we do in the Christian life is by the grace of the Holy Spirit. So in order to close out this uh, evening's devotion, let me read a prayer. It's uh, written by, or prayed by, I guess you could say, Richard Baxter. And it goes like this. It's a prayer to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, finish the healing, saving work of Jesus, my Lord. And do not let the flesh or the world prevail. Let not my nights be so long and my days so short, nor sin eclipse those beams which have often illuminated my soul. Without you, books are senseless scrawls, studies are dreams, and knowledge is foolishness. Be in me the resident witness of my Lord, the author of my prayers, the spirit of adoption, the seal of God, and the deposit of my inheritance. Transcribe those sacred words on my heart, that by your inspiration are recorded in your holy word. Bring that love upon my heart that may keep it in a continual life of love. Teach me the work which I must do in heaven. Refresh my soul with the delights of holiness and show me the joys which arise from the believing hopes of the everlasting joys. Exercise my heart and tongue in the holy praises of my Lord. Strengthen me in sufferings and conquer the terrors of death and hell. Make me more heavenly, and let my last thoughts, words, and works on earth be like those which will be my first in the place of glorious immortality, the place where the kingdom is delivered up to the Father, and God will forever be all and in all. And the Lord of whom, and through whom, and to whom are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen.